Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 293. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. Glad to have you here. This is session number 293 you're listening to. My guest today is Heidi Trefethen. Heidi is a producer, engineer, educator, composer. She has worked for many years at the Freight and Salvage, a very classic Bay Area venue doing front of house. She's a French hornist. She produces records, and she also teaches people all about production and audio. So very much looking forward to our conversation. Heidi Trofethen coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about staying motivated. So I was really struggling with what I wanted to talk about with you in today's episode. And of course, all it takes is the act of making a cup of coffee. So as I was standing next to the coffee machine here at the house and push the button, because we got kind of a fancy coffee machine, push the button, the thing starts grinding the beans and the coffee starts coming out and the smell when that hits my nose, I don't know what it is. My brain just kicks into gear. And I immediately knew, I was like, ah, motivation. That's what we got to talk about. You know, in the Boudreaux household, in this time of pandemic, things are fairly steady. A little boring because, you know, we just, we're not going anywhere. We're not doing a whole lot, but steady. We try to get out and, you know, ride bikes or play ping pong or, you know, do something. I don't know. It's when you have two kids, my kids' ages, you know, you're trying to come up with ideas so they don't just sit in front of their computers all day. And so I don't sit in front of my computer all day. Although that's tough because I have to work. I have things to do. I have My wife works, I work. We have to work to pay for things, right? But when things kind of get into a, a particular rhythm sometimes, uh, I think that personally I can fall into a state of complacency. And when I do that, I tend to stop, you know, I get a little comfortable and then I stop trying to achieve goals that I want to achieve. And I stop thinking about the future as much. And some of you might say, well, that's good. I mean, you know, life's short, you know, you should live each day as it is and, and enjoy it. And I do, but I also like to plan for the future. So one of the things that I, I did uh, over the course of this summer, uh, I bought myself uh, an iPad Pro and it's my first iPad. I've never officially owned an iPad and took a lot of decision-making to want to get it. I really thought, you know, I know I'm going to watch movies on this. That's a given. What am I going to do that's productive? Because if I'm just going to watch movies, I don't need to get one. I can watch movies in other places. And I really like overthought it. I'm sure I would drive you all insane with the amount of pros and cons that rattled around in my brain with regards to getting it. So I finally got it. It took like a month to get here. Anyways, I digress on on the iPad front. The point is, is what I'm using the iPad for, there's a application in there called notes and I also have uh, Evernote and I got the pen and every morning you know I've mentioned I've been getting up early 4 30 in the morning god that's early but I go out sit in the backyard with my coffee and take that iPad out there and I just start you know I create a new to-do list for the day what am I doing today number one and I just start I don't even think about it I just start writing I don't consciously think well okay, this is what is important for the day. I just think of purely what I, I want to get done for the day, no matter what its importance and where it falls on the list. The list does not designate uh, any order of importance. And as the day goes on, I keep that iPad in front of me and I cross out the stuff that I've completed. That's one of the things I do to keep myself motivated is just consciously keep a record. And, I, you know, I in notes, I put a date, you know, like, 723 to do or to do 723 and so i can go back and i can see you know where i'm dropping the ball you know what's taking a long time and that's one way to you know stay motivated is lists whether you do it you don't have to buy an ipad pro to make a list believe me but that it works for me the, the way it works i can store those notes i can recall those notes i'm not searching through you know yellow pads of paper trying to find out what it is that i uh, was thinking about And so getting up early, going to bed early, getting a good night's sleep, taking, making my to-do list. Also, um, 
In another monologue, I mentioned virtual coffees, meeting up with people online just to chat, just to have, you know, 30, 60 minutes, let's chat, what's going on, what's new. Those help me stay motivated. My mastermind calls with my uh, my crew on Friday mornings at the crack of dawn. Of course, 6 a.m. now seems like a cakewalk now that I get up at 4.30. So those, uh, those interactions are key. Uh, I've mentioned in the past that uh, v- was very inspired by my interview with George Vlad and have gone head deep into field recording and I've joined a field recording Slack channel that's been outstanding. So a Slack channel is great no matter what it is you're getting involved in it's you know whatever the uh, the topic is it's great because unlike social media there's no ads and it's just it feels more communal everybody kind of maybe not everybody doesn't necessarily know one another but like the other day uh, a guy reached out and kind of put it out to the group hey I'm trying to troubleshoot this thing on this piece of gear I happen to have that piece of gear so I said hey I'm game let's do it so we you know slacked back and forth and got a a repro for this piece of gear and contacted the manufacturer and explained the situation and they were immediately on it which was really great so that kind of you know communication with other people staying in touch with people i'm a big linkedin fan people send me messages all the time if you want to send me a message and say hello please do maybe you don't use linkedin that's okay but maybe reaching out to me as an excuse for you to get on there and sharpen up your profile. I always respond. You know, I may not give you a a novel of reply back, but I definitely will respond and say hello back. You know, beyond the obvious exercise, good eating, you know, all that good healthy living stuff, of course, that, that helps. But, you know, this all keeps coming back and here I am again, I'm about to mention uh, the book Atomic Habits, which I, I'm now catching myself and I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I'm mentioning that book again. But it really is, it's about those habits that if you instill those habits, you're not necessarily making a change in the first day, week, month, year. But over the course of time, if you look back at the habits that you put in place, you'll notice, oh, as a result of that, I got here. And I think the the analogy that I've used that others have used is that if you set out on a boat and you're steering straight and you want to change course, even if you just veer to the right or to the left, just a few degrees, that may not seem like much in the beginning of the journey, but quite honestly, you're going to wind up in a radically different place than had you just gone the straight path that you were set on before. I think you know what I mean by that. So stay motivated, communicate with people, take care of your body during this time, take care of your body during whatever time, communicate, participate, get a good night's sleep. There's no reason why you can't get a good night's sleep these days. Really. I mean, go to bed early. There's nothing wrong with that. Unless you're a night owl. If you're a night owl and you have an opposite schedule, hey, I'm all for that. Because, you know, that's that's just a different way of doing it. So no judgment there if you want to stay up late. Absolutely not. That's just the uh, a different approach. And it's one that I have done for years in my life. But I've, you know, I'm kind of turning into an old man now. So that's what I'm doing now, going to bed early. Anyways, that's it. Stay motivated, my friends. Don't don't let this time period put you into a state of complacency. Achieve your goals. It doesn't matter that we're all stuck at home and online all the time. We can go to a lot of different places in a different kind of way based on where we're at right now. So that's that. Thanks for listening. Drink more coffee, and I'll talk to you all later. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know, if you don't know them, is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, It's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Heidi Trefethen here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Heidi, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much, Matt, for having me. It's great to be here. I wish the audience could see what I'm seeing. Heidi's background is tastefully chosen. Was it Studio 2, did you say? Studio 2. At Abbey, Abbey Road. Road. Yeah. At Abbey Road, yeah. <laughs> My personal corner office. Yeah, where you set up <laughs> shop during the day. Yeah. Yeah. Just casual thing. Well, so... Let's talk about today first, and then I want to kind of backtrack, get into your backstory. You're currently working at SF Jazz. Well, that's one of one of the things that you do. You work at SF right. Jazz, doing front of house and monitor engineering. You're mm-hmm. also an educator there, mm-hmm. and you play French horn, and yep. you're a front of house and monitor engineer over at the well-loved Freight and Salvage, a Bay Area institution. And We've been around a long time. Yeah. So... Tell me about all your current roles now, and let's just kind of take the COVID part of it out of the equation. Let's just, when things are normal, what are you doing? I'm running, I'm driving a lot for one thing. Oh, I bet you are. Running around a lot. No, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying a, an incredible career. Like you said, engineer, front of house, monitors, SF Jazz and Freight and Salvage. I play French horn in several Bay regional orchestras, such as Santa Rosa Symphony, Santa Cruz, Berkeley, Oakland. I I teach privately horn. And I actually have a horn duo called Medias Terra Horn Duo. And we won a grant from Intermusic SF last year to fund a composition and a performance of a piece for two horns and electronics composed by Ida Shirazi, an Iranian composer. Hmm. I do a lot of advising and mentoring. Um, So all of that keeps me really busy. I love my teaching educator at SF Jazz. I teach mixing, mastering, recording, intro to music production, Pro Tools, Logic, do it all. I'm currently advising Berkeley Unified School District, as I had for SF Unified School District in implementing and creating a digital music program for high school students. I think that's it. (laughs) Definitely running around a bit around the Bay Area. Now, let's interject COVID into the equation. How do you maintain that career with our current situation? 
I've had to learn to evolve, actually. I pretty much lost everything, as many of us did. All my live work just vaporized in an instant. And classes, live performances in the orchestras that I was talking about. And so I've evolved to doing a lot of remote mixing and put on a show with Tammy Hall when this first started via Zoom. I'm doing a ton of teaching now. I have my own private courses in logic and music production. I have five or six private students, actually. I teach music production Mm -hmm. to those students. My youngest student is actually three years old. I teach him piano, beginning piano via Zoom, and also his brother. And they actually can play Beethoven and Bach now. So I think that's going well. Well, I'm feeling inadequate. Oh, don't. (laughs) I just have musical ADD. That's all. No, I can't, I, stop. I, I, I can't stop, won't stop. No, with all due respect to you, I was, with, <laughs> I was comparing myself to the three-year-old who can play, you know, Bach right. and Beethoven. Right, I know. Well, actually, I do too, but <laughs> I, they're very talented. Yeah, and uh, a lot of advising. Like I said, I'm advising the Berkeley Unified School District about turning their programs into online programs. And I'm a, on the advisory board at CCSF, City College of San Francisco. Like I said, doing a lot of mentoring to specifically women who are new to the industry or very interested in it. Mm -hmm. We're turning women's audio mission classes to the online format as well. And I teach intro to live sound with them and also intro to recording and music production. So the live sound class may be on hold. For now. It's hard to teach live sound. Yeah. In a non-live sound format. Do you feel that the virus and and everything that's happened in in our industry, do you think that there's some positive aspects to having to force people's hand at evolving? I definitely do. I mean, it really fast-tracked a lot of changes that people were going to make anyway. And I can speak for myself as well. As much as I love live sound, I was ready to transition more into producing and recording, which mm. I'm doing a lot of as well right now, much more than before. I also think that many of us are still struggling in some ways. I've, you know, a few friends of mine actually in the span of two days, four friends actually approached me and said that they were really struggling with the loss of their careers and just existential challenges in general. Although they, even though they're going through these challenges, they said that it's been great fuel for creativity. And it's actually forced them to make those changes much earlier than they had thought. I also get the sense that it's forced the hand of musicians to get a better grasp on recording. I have a particular bass player friend who's a very in-demand bass player who would always just Mm -hmm. come to my house to do overdubs to my studio. And he finally committed and got himself an interface, laptop, Pro Tools, and he's off and running and... He's a little scared, but he's figuring it out. It's daunting for some musicians. Musicians may have incredibly developed musical skills, having studied for decades. But yes, the the technical skills have escaped them, or they haven't had the time to develop those. And so I'm helping many musicians do that. And I'm speaking especially of classical musicians, when their time is so heavily spent on maintaining their skills. Yeah. Which is always, it's an ongoing process. I mean, you never stop. Do you think audio, if we're comparing, let's say, musicians to audio people, which we both are, I play drums and you play French horn, but I'm not dependent upon drums in my daily life much anymore. It's all audio-based, but you seem to have a, a good blend of the two. Do you feel that you have an advantage as an audio person in supplementing your income with online work? I do. I think it's a great time to be an engineer. And as an engineer, it's always a good time to be a musician. Being an engineer and a musician gives a language to both and it reinforces each other. And being able to read a score and being able to transpose as a hornist is often required to do is actually in some circles a rare skill. Mm. And I feel that Knowing what it's like to be on both sides of the glass is incredibly valuable. And it's definitely aided me in in teaching online. 
I won't dwell too much longer on the COVID thing, but I will say that we are very lucky in that it's happened during a time when our technological achievements have are where they at. Imagine if this had happened in the 80s or the 90s, God forbid the 70s, we just wouldn't be in the same position with technology, the internet, communication. You and I probably, yeah. we wouldn't be having this discussion remotely in the 90s for sure. Not at all. Not at all. This technology wasn't accessible and didn't exist before, what, about 10 years ago? Yeah. 15? Yeah. I th perhaps. Yeah. To the level that it does now. I agree. And it, it, it's so accessible. It's so inexpensive. I mean, you can pick up a Scarlet for what, 129 Yep. If you just need two inputs, two outputs. Which most people do. Exactly. So I'm helping a lot of people set up their home studios and learning logic, learning garage band, whatever they want to record in. Well, let me ask you about your beginnings with audio. Where did audio become important to you? And did it arrive at the same time as your, your love for the French horn? I don't remember a time when it wasn't important to me. Music is so deeply ingrained in who I am. I remember being very young and just sitting at the feet of my parents who were also musicians. My mother played guitar, my dad played piano, and I remember them playing the Beatles on cassette, actually. Or actually, it was reel to reel. Mm. And listening to that sound and being able to separate each instrument and listen to them very selectively. And I was always interested in recording. In fact, when I was, I think I was about eight or nine, my uncle had given me all of his Beatles cassettes. And in playing around with the stereo, I noticed that in the recording process, the instruments were panned to one side and the vocals were panned to the left side. And somehow I figured out that I could go to our VW bus, the bus that I grew up in, <laughs> the car that my parents had. I put in the Beatles cassette into the tape player, panned it all the way to the instrument side and took my cassette recorder with the blank cassette, pressed record, and I sang, I think it was All My Lovin' <laughs> to, <laughs> to the instrument-only version. Overdubbing at a young age? I was overdubbing at a young age on cassette, yeah. And I actually made my own podcast, what would be known as a podcast. And I talked about school. I talked about school lunches, you know, the important stuff. Absolutely. Playing softball. Yeah. Yeah. Soccer. Yeah. So it's always been important to me. There's never been a time when audio and also music was not important to me. You got your education at Brigham Young University, but you also went to mm -hmm. California Recording Institute. Right. Which came first? Brigham Young University okay. came first. And actually in high school, I attended Idlewild School of Music and the Arts, which is a performing arts high school Okay. in the mountains in Southern California above Palm Springs. Huh. So yeah. And then I went to Brigham Young University and got my music degree. And then years later, I decided I really wanted to pursue this after playing French horn pretty much exclusively. And I actually started a band too called Wonelli and played around the the city in the Bay Area for years. And then I went to California Recording Institute. It was a nine-month program. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I learned a ton. I got a great base of knowledge to, to move forward. And my first job out of school was at Freight and Salvage. So I've been there for quite a while now. And Freight and Salvage for non-Bay Area people is a place that's been around for a very long time. It Now, it's existed in two different locations, and I'm spacing out where those are, but mm -hmm. it's in a much bigger venue. That, I mean, it, it is a much bigger venue now than it used to be. Would you agree with that? Much bigger. I think the middle freight, so the, the first freight was on San Pablo Ave near the middle freight, which was Addison. It was at Addison and San Pablo. And that I think seated about 100, 150. And the current venue seats about 500. So mm. it's it's grown quite a bit. And we've been there, I think, since 2009. Yeah. So about 11 years. Well, that's gone quickly. Oh, yeah. I, I haven't been in the new location, the new location, air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> the 11-year-old new location. Exactly. Yeah. Tell me about your experience at the Freight and Salvage getting in there. How did you how did you get in there? What were your early experiences as an audio pro? 
After school, I took my resume to the manager, Steve Baker, and I said, hey, I'm finishing school and I love acoustic music and I would want to work here. And so he he gave me a job and it was that easy, actually. It's probably not that easy anymore, but I started doing open mics and that was a great, great foundation because I had to make decisions extremely quickly. There was really no sound check. So the mixing skills that I developed at California Recording Institute really shined. Hmm. And it aided me in being able to, like I said, make mixing decisions very quickly. And it really developed my chops. I remember, you know, there being primarily acoustic music, as you had mentioned, but also acapella. Mm-hmm. I'd worked with the acapella group, the House Jacks at one point. And oh, yeah. I know that they spent quite a, quite a bit of time there mm-hmm. doing shows. Many, many nights. What kind of a challenge was it each night doing open mic? Was it just only people playing acoustic guitar and vocal or mm-hmm. was it more than that? It was acapella. It was singer-songwriter. It was some a small jazz trio, pianists who sang, pianist vocalists. I think that was pretty much the breadth of the genres at open mics. So I don't remember any large ensembles at open mics, but it's been a couple decades. So When did mm-hmm. recording start to enter your life on a professional level? So that's what I learned at California Recording Institute. I learned on a 48 channel Harrison board. And before I get more in depth about that, the the real strength of that program was he threw us on the board right away to mix. And that gave me an incredible foundation. Fast forward quite a few years. Actually, I did mostly live sound for a long time, for years and years, and actually moved to Italy to play in the Rome Opera Orchestra. And I wasn't actually doing any recording at that time or any live sound. I was focused solely on French horn. When I came back to the States, I did a a few recordings, but again, mostly live sound. I did some multi-track recordings at Freight and Salvage when I was mixing there or hired by artists to do it, to just take the signals and throw them in a recorder. But I think it was about 2012 when I met Tammy Hall and she hired me to produce her piano sound, her Blue Soul recording that she did at Studio Trilogy. So I worked with Justin Lieberman and Tammy and all the all those cats. And then I started to do to do more. I did Lucy Kaplansky's Kaplansky Sings Kaplansky, <laughs> which was <laughs> a recording, actually just a board recording from Freight and Salvage that turned out really well of her her dad singing with her on several different tracks. And then I worked with Brian Bell, who was Herbie Hancock's first engineer and actually introduced him to computers. And so I assisted him on Nestler and Houghton, which is about five, five or six years old now. And several other projects, some indie stuff, classical recordings. I worked for the Sonoma Bach Choir mm-hmm. and Chorus. So I did some recordings for them. Yeah, just kind of a, besides those ones that I, my main credits, I just did a whole bunch of things that I've never really listed that have been great projects and very rewarding. Looking back on that, like, how do you think you got hired on the recording gigs? And what is it you feel that are your strengths that you bring to the table for people? I got hired for recording gigs because so many people know me and my work, having been in the live realm for so long, and also being a musician and meeting so many other musicians over the years. So not only do I have the musical skills and I have the recording chops, people hear about me, I get referrals a ton. And I think just being great to be around, Mm -hmm. if I may humble brag, (laughs) it makes a huge difference, the kind of person that you show up as and how you can deal with people. And if people want to be around you, then that is probably half the equation, perhaps. But I think all of those together are the reasons why I get called to do recordings and gigs. And if I may dissect that a little bit, when you're talking about the person that you you show up as and and, Mm -hmm. and how how you are on a session, can you expound on that a little bit? Like, what is your mindset when you come into a session? What's my mindset? Just really being open to possibilities and whatever that musician brings into the session that day, 
so having having a mindset of being open to whatever the musician brings to the table that day is your approach to recording with people to just let them lead or do you feel that you bring a little bit of guidance and focus to their plan you know it really depends on the role that i'm playing in the moment sometimes i get hired as an engineer sometimes solely as a producer mm-hmm. sometimes both depending on the budget and what they're looking for because some some people hire me for my production skills and engineering school skills or both i think fundamentally that openness and holding space is of greatest importance and i generally let them lead the way because my job as an engineer and a producer is to amplify no pun intended their their voice and mm-hmm. their vision and i i do have input for example if something's out of tune i'll point that out or if i hear something that might work a little better maybe lyric wise or arrangement wise even instrumentation i'll certainly give my input but i really do let them lead the way mm-hmm. You know, something that I think I've struggled with over the years is not necessarily the ability to get along. I I can easily get along with a a group of people. But sometimes, and I think I've only noticed this in my personal life, is that sometimes I will say things in a tone of voice that I'm unaware of. And my intention is good, but sometimes the delivery is a little lackluster, (laughs) for lack of a better term. Is that something that comes naturally to you to deliver the message that you want to deliver? Or do you think about it consciously, how you ask somebody or say, hey, you know what, you're out of tune? I fundamentally, I'm a nice person and I'm really mellow. In addition to that, I know what it's like to be a musician and I know what kind of pressure it is to be a musician, especially a classical musician. There's a lot riding on quality and production and the consistency in that. And that can cause vulnerability. And I know that every musician, as an artist, I know that every musician is vulnerable in some way. Every music creator, I think. And so I think my communication style comes from having empathy Mm. as a performer and a musician and really understanding and getting to know that person quickly and as well as I can. And I don't mean... I mean about their background Mm -hmm. and who they are, but I I also mean being intuitive and quote unquote reading the room and gaining an understanding of what kind of style would work best for them if I'm explaining myself clearly. Completely clearly, yeah. Yeah, these are soft skills that some people can learn and they're also not teachable. So I think that those skills that I have in communication and intuition are incredibly valuable in this industry especially recording and and definitely live sound because there's even more or even different vulnerabilities, I think, with musicians and in a performance setting. Do you talk about this very topic? Do you talk about this topic with those that you do teach about empathy and how to work with people in the studio? I do all the time. I think these skills are probably... 85% of it. And then of course the technical skills, but I do encourage students to be the kind of person that people want to be around and developing intuition and the ability to read people and read a room. It's incredibly important and valuable. Holding space for the performer. I know that's a really trendy I've never heard the term. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. So the if it's trending, I'm, I'm of course, out of touch completely, so as usual, but I, I, lo- <laughs> I love Hashtag holding space. Yeah, <laughs> I, lo- I love that term. Right, I do too. Where do you think that comes from in your background, that ability to hold space for people and, and do the things you're doing? That's a really good question. I think besides being my, my personality, I think that I went through a lot of challenges when I was growing up and all through my young adulthood. And I can speak a little bit about those if you'd like. Yeah, please. And how that informs who you are today. Okay, sure. I mean, we're getting into personal territory, but I think that's okay. It's part of who I am. Take it, so, as, take it as far as you are comfortable. Okay. <laughs> so I went to BYU mm-hmm. and i that's because I grew up Mormon. Mm-hmm in a very traditional Orthodox Mormon family. 
large Mormon family. And I pretty much knew without knowing that I was queer. Mm -hmm. And I experienced a lot of challenges within my own family and with the religion at large. And having to go through many challenges, like the sort of managing the information from so many different sources that I was somehow flawed Mm. and wrong. And there was a lot of rejection in my family and in the church as well. And I had to, I had to strengthen myself. I had to learn how to strengthen myself and to really love myself. And I think the survival skills that I developed Mm. are really key. And it was incredibly challenging for a long time. And I've been through a lot of therapy So I think that definitely helped as well. Not only did I survive Mormonism and being queer, literally survived, I did a lot of self-development. And I think it's definitely, those traits are intrinsic, but I really developed them through my experiences. I cannot imagine being in an environment where who you are at your core, Mm -hmm. you're being rejected for that, or you're being criticized for that. Mm-hmm. and not supported. So it's very easy to see the lines between where you came from and the struggles you went through to mm-hmm. your natural state of empathy in the studio mm-hmm. where you want to support and you want to give mm-hmm. people space and let them be themselves. So I totally get that. I I mean, that, those are the conclusions I'm drawing is, is your, your strength comes from the struggles you went through. And your, what you bring to the table for musicians in the studio definitely is informed by those early experiences. Would you agree? I would totally agree. I know very, very well, fortunately and unfortunately, what it's like to be an other in my own family, but also a church that claims to have supreme power and is the only true church on the face of the earth of all time. <laughs> and... I'm sorry you to know, laugh. Just a minor. It's... No, you can laugh. Yeah. And I'm I'm doing great now. Couldn't be better. And that is concurrent with my French horn studies as a classical musician and very, very narrow metrics of success. And as it should be, I suppose, to produce that quality over and over and over consistently. Mm-hmm. And there are times when I had great success great successes. And there are times when I've failed incredibly well. <laughs> Let's say that. And there are times when I felt like I I wasn't good enough. And there are still times that I feel like I'm not a good enough French hornist in the classical world. And so not feeling good enough is something that I really don't want anyone else to feel personally or professionally. And I think that definitely informs my my empathy, the empathy that I bring to the table that it's okay if you make mistakes, we can do it over. It's not, mistakes aren't a moral issue and you don't have to be perfect. And that comes from being a perfectionist myself, Mm. that almost nothing is good enough. And that's my classically trained mindset for better or worse. Interesting too, that you do have that classically trained mindset, yet you Mm -hmm. can come to a studio and be who we've been talking about. Be that person who's open and and supportive and giving them their space. It is really interesting. It's a lot easier for me to be empathetic with others rather than myself. Yeah. (laughs) Counterintuitively, I guess. (laughs) Well, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to Mm -hmm. talk about educating people. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Where mm -hmm. did you find that you had the passion for it? or mm -hmm. the desire to want to teach people? You know, I actually never really set out to be an educator or a teacher. I never even wanted to. But my my first foray into teaching was at SF Jazz and Rebecca Maulion. She approached me and asked me if I wanted to teach Pro Tools because I put something out on social media about a Pro Tools project that I was working on with an Israeli composer, actually. And this is about five years ago. Um, and so for five years, I've been teaching at SF Jazz, actually about six years now. And I feel like I've gotten better, better, better at it each, each class, in fact. And I've found that I love teaching. And I think it's that I love giving the gift of knowledge to people. People come to my classes or they, they take private lessons from me because they want to be inspired and be inspired to make music, to strengthen and develop that skill. And it's such a pleasure to be able to impart the knowledge, but also to see them grow as their own musician, mm. if that makes sense. And, and that's really why I love it so much is, again, because I, I work with people and I help them to realize their, their dreams of making music. And I can't get enough. <laughs> Are most of your students musicians learning recording technology, or are they just future engineers that have no musical training? Right now, they're mostly musicians. Okay. There are some that are starting from absolute zero in music and don't have that education. And I also really like to teach beginners to give them that gift. I mean, it, it sounds kind of esoteric and new agey, but it really is <laughs> a gift. Hey, as long as you enjoy it, fantastic. I love it. Yeah. And I teach kids that have no clue what they're getting into. You know, their their parents have, have signed them up and they've become really good at what they do. I have a 10-year-old girl who I'm I'm teaching and now she's teaching me things in logic. So Yeah, there's always something new to learn in these DAWs. Isn't that the truth? Oh my gosh. It's never ending. There's still stuff in Pro Tools that somebody will teach me and I'm like, really? How long has that feature been in there? Oh, you know, like 10 years. Oh. <laughs> Oh, okay. You mean it's not this last release? <laughs> <laughs> I've never even heard of that feature. I know, right? So yeah, SF Jazz, Women's Audio Mission. Now I'm on the faculty of Institute of Musical Arts that normally holds a summer program in Goshen, Mass. I'm now on the board of that organization and I'm team teaching with Leslie Ann Jones. Oh, wow. Online this summer. Wow. Um, in August, actually, for about a week and a half. So we've, of course, transitioned our program via Zoom online. And I actually designed the curriculum for them. One of my recent guests, actually this week, the episode just came out with Jessica Paz, who is a, a mm. Tony Award-winning theater sound person. Jessica and I were talking about women in audio. And, and I said, what is the key to getting more women in audio? And she mm -hmm. said, it's identifying talent and giving opportunity. She's absolutely right. Giving opportunity. I would say putting them in positions to do their work, to develop their talents. And she's been doing the whole world of theater sound for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. she said that she definitely is seeing more and more women come into the world of audio and sound. Is that your 
observation? Would you agree or disagree in your experience? Oh, I'd absolutely agree. Absolutely. There are so many more of us in positions of sound and recording and production. We have a long way to go, but it is definitely changing and changing pretty quickly. When I was coming up, when I first started, I actually was the only woman in my class at uh, California Recording Institute. And also I was the only other female engineer that I knew for maybe a decade, 10, 15 years. I hadn't met Terry Winston or Leslie Ann Jones. And, you know, I didn't have the same kind of mentorship that men have and had all along. And so I've, I've had to persevere a lot through some challenges and lost opportunities or just being looked over and not taken seriously. And so because of that, I promote women all of the time as much as I can. And I make sure that part of my educating women, especially at Women's Audio Mission, is giving them confidence and being an example of strength and perseverance and confidence in the audio industry. And I think the sexism is much more prevalent in live sound, which is where Hmm. my focus has been generally. It's unbelievable every day before COVID, of course, Mm -hmm. every day I encountered some kind of sexism. And so I've had to, again, develop a lot of personal and professional strength, just managing that, navigating that. Where does that sexism come from? Who in in the world of live sound, where does that generally emanate in your world? I think on their other engineers, some management and actually some musicians. I mean, it's really clear with some musicians that they don't want to work with a woman, that they want it to be a male space. And sometimes I've encountered men who find it unbelievable that I would know what I'm talking about, that I could actually do what I do. Unreal. It is unreal. And one of the things I've appreciated about COVID and the shelter in place is that I don't have to be around that right now. So it's a nice break, but unfortunately it's a reality in live sound. It's been a male dominated field for since it began and that is changing and it's changing somewhat rapidly, but it really needs to accelerate and we need to see much more balance. Yeah. Boy, once again, I can't imagine because I just don't know. And I guess I wasn't brought up that way. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I've, I get, I'm just kind of flabbergasted that there are still like Neanderthals out there that would actually like show up in a professional environment and treat somebody in that capacity. It's frankly quite alarming. It surprises me every day. I don't quite understand where it comes from, but I think that it's rooted in insecurity of some sort. There's competition, the need for competition and competing comes from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but it's it's a lot easier to, rather than looking at oneself and strengthening one's own career and abilities, it's really easy to doubt those of someone who's women who are historically, I guess, oppressed. Mm-hmm. And it's very unfortunate. You know, it's not a mechanics garage. It's music. It's yeah. live performance, which knows no cultural bounds and no gender boundaries, really. I could say the only times in my career that I've faced any kind of slight adversity or discrimination Mm -hmm. is is being a younger engineer around Mm. older men who Mm -hmm. would come into a situation and go, you're the engineer? Mm -hmm. Right, like Mm -hmm. you little whippersnapper are gonna Mm -hmm. be taking care of this, really? Yeah, right. So. That's, you know, that's the the limits of, of my experience with things like that. I don't necessarily relate it to intelligence because I've met some very smart people who are just assholes, but I just, it's an, it's an attitude thing. And I think, as you say, it's an insecurity issue. So mm-hmm. I, I, it makes sense. Yeah. So you know how that feels. It's a little bit. Yeah. Okay. I've, right. I've only, I've experienced a couple of occasions where I was like, Ooh, geez, yeah. you're kind of making me feel small. Yeah. And that's every, almost every night for my entire career. And I've been doing this for 21 years professionally. And it, you know, there are times when it has, it was a little depressing to be quite frank. And there were times when I wanted to quit because it was so unpleasant. And 
it just seemed like a mountain that I had to climb every day. And it was very tiring, but I didn't. I persevered. And that is the best revenge, is that you stayed in and you persevered. Yeah, they can't stop me. And, it, you know, I don't want to, I want to be clear that it's not all men at all. It's some. I've had so much support from many men hmm. in the industry. So I can't, I can't say that it's all men in the industry. It's some. Well, I want to shift topics for a bit and we'll approach this in a broad perspective. I'm not looking for specifics because this is a more personal thing. With regards to business and finances, mm -hmm. do you have an approach, a personal philosophy that you use to survive and to maintain because the freelance world, as we know, is very precarious? Mm -hmm. So what is your approach to financial survival or do you have an approach? I don't think that I have a specific approach. I've been incredibly fortunate to have had work come to me pretty much all along in my career, but especially now the engineering skills that I have are so valuable. And so many people know me that I'm approached quite often to advise, especially. Mm. I think, you know, really putting yourself out there though, right now, mostly through social media, always, always helps. When people know what you do, they will find you. And with that constant workflow coming in or that constant workload coming in, I should say, mm -hmm. that makes for a, a more comfortable existence in the Bay Area. It really does. It's a very expensive place to live. I mean, I think I'm still Bay Area poor, but I'm doing, I'm doing well. <laughs> <laughs> that that's sense. that's the best quote right there bay area poor <laughs> yeah. right anywhere else anywhere else <laughs> yeah i'm still not in the housing market unfortunately okay yeah i i i'm very clear about my hourly rate if people can't afford me i find other options for example creating classes so that you know, that are very community-based so that people can easily access my classes and lessons, but be alleviated some of the the cost of my my hourly rate. Do you ever pass up gigs if the budget just is is not acceptable? It really depends on on what it is. I, I feel like every time you step outside your door to do work, that there should be some value, whether it's monetarily or whether it's connections, etc. For example, the reason that we had some challenges finding a time together is because I was moving a studio from Berkeley to ultimately Berlin. And I moved, his name is Corrado Rustici. I don't know if you know him. He's a guitarist. He's I've know. met him and he's worked with some friends of mine. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. He's incredibly talented and such a great guy and a killer producer. Mm -hmm. I mean, he produced Whitney Houston and actually discovered Andrea Bocelli, I found out, did not know that. Wow. Yeah. And several artists in Italy and beyond that I, I learned about when I was living in Italy. And you, you speak Italian. Yes, I speak Italian. Parlo Italiano. Fluentemente. Wow. Mm -hmm. that's That's got to be enjoyable. Oh, I love it. It's such a beautiful language and opera means so much more than it would <laughs> otherwise. At least Italian opera. Yeah. <laughs> I don't speak German, so it doesn't have quite the same meaning. But yeah. Corrado and I, uh, Corrado, he's from Naples. So we spoke Italian pretty much the entire time we were working together. So anyway, my point was that my charges and his budget uh, differed a bit. And I was fine being flexible because I made an incredible connection with him and I wanted to do the project. So mm. I was happy to be able to do that. So those are the kind of things I weigh. I need to make a living and a, and a good living for the Bay Area. But if there's a really important and good connection that I can make, then I will be flexible. I try and actually tell my students and anyone I'm mentoring to not work for free. It sets a precedent for that person professionally, but also it changes the game for other engineers and other musicians that they have to compete with. It's really hard to compete with free work. Yeah. So I, I think it devalues all our work. It really does. So if that's the message that you get out of this, listeners, don't work for free. Please do not work for free. Mm -mm. 
If you're on a board of directors, then that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really enjoying those boards service. Yeah. Well, we're about out of time. If people want to find out more about you, do you keep up with a social media presence, a website, any of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can check me out at HeidiTrefethen.com. I'm on social, Instagram, Facebook. I'm not too active on Twitter, but mostly Facebook, but definitely Instagram as well. Email me. My email address is on my website. I love talking to people and working with people, especially now when there's a lot of distance between us. So yeah, hit me up. Would love to talk with you. I'll include all of that plus your LinkedIn profile in the show notes for this episode. So if people want to cool. reach out and follow you or ask you a question, they can do so. Yeah, I would love that. Can I talk about some things that I'm doing? Absolutely. That might be interesting? Please. Okay. I have a, a little list here. I love collaborations musically especially duos. I love the duo format. So I'm collaborating with Tammy Hall. I'll be producing and recording her upcoming release. We're in process. And as soon as we can get into Skywalker, we're going to be recording there with Leslie Ann Jones as well. So I have my Medius Terra Horn duo and the composition funding that we won from the Intermusic SF grant last year. I'm also collaborating with Don Richardson, drummer. Do you know oh. Don? I've known Dawn for a while. Yeah, she's super cool. She's actually putting some drum tracks on the duo project of electronic music. My duo is Simpatica. So I write the music and do some vocals. And my friend Amy Reber also sings and writes a lot of lyrics. I'm also producing singer-songwriter Anya Blumenfeld. I'm, again, teaching at Women's Audio Mission SF Jazz, my private students, Let's see what else. Gosh, I'm on the faculty of IMA, Institute of Musical Arts. Or that's while COVID has paused the live stuff. Yeah. Live mixing and also performing. So That's great. You're working with Dawn. I love Dawn. Isn't she cool? Yeah. I'm very fond of her. She's 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 great. She's really cool. I met her. She took one of my logic classes at SF Jazz and then she hit me up for private lessons and long story short, I started taking drum lessons from her. So we started trading back and forth mm. lessons. And that was really fun. I just go and hang out in her studio and play drums and we'd record into Logic. And now we're doing a collaboration with my electronic duo. So in spite of COVID, you're very busy. I'm super busy. All of a sudden, I there was like a, a month of just nothing, which was kind of the transition from being crazy busy to nothing. Yeah. And then I've gotten super busy again. So I'm really happy about that. And I'm so glad to be working. Let me ask you this. All right. So you've kind of got this whole new routine, I'm sure, in mm -hmm. the in the COVID world. Mm -hmm. And I keep seeing, you know, little news pieces, you know, vaccine being worked on. Let's say we get a vaccine, all this blows over and we can go back to prior routines. Is there anything that you wouldn't go back to? You know, I really don't miss the driving. I, I will go back to live sound, mm -hmm. but not, I think, in the capacity and the frequency that I was. I'm really into producing now and recording and teaching online. I'm loving it. It was also really hard on my body. And in my, I guess, upper middle age, it was becoming a bit much. So I think... Just running around, you know, not getting enough sleep mm. is what I would like to keep out of the equation. But we'll see how possible that is. Wow. Yeah, it, it will be fascinating to see how once everything kind of gets sorted out on the vaccination front, what will happen? How will people in all walks of life, but specifically speaking to our group, audio people, what will we do? What will we change? Interesting to hear your perspective. It's a very interesting perspective, and I think it's going to be constant evolution and reevaluation. And I'm sure that the tech is there and will continue to develop so that we can do a lot of remote, remote work. Well, cool. Well, we're out of time. It's been fantastic talking with you. I'm glad that I could make your, make your acquaintance in, in the post-COVID world. I'm sure we Likewise. will hang at some point and see each other out in the world. 
Likewise. I really look forward to that. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I appreciate you letting me talk about my work and my history and what things I'm interested in going forward. Well, thank you for taking the time to share it with us. Absolutely. Audience, I will include all the links I mentioned in the show notes, so be sure and check Heidi out online. All right, Heidi, you take care. You too, Matt. Thanks again so much. And thank you. Have a great day. You too. Talk to you later. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Heidi Trefethen. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Want to thank Anne Marie Plow for the editing, Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith for his booming voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn, spread the word about the show, and visit workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.